You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is a, a little dark comedy, uh, kind of part, part dark comedy, part social satire. Um, it's got a decomposing pri- protagonist, some dysfunctional family members, friendship, love, romance, and a little necrophilia. So, uh, <laughs> but the question begs the question: Is it necrophilia if you're both dead? <laughs> Most. Most zombie novels and most zombie movies are about, not really about the zombies, they're about people and how they deal with the problems of zombies. While Breathers is about zombies and how they deal with the problem of people. I don't remember the accident. I didn't see any bright light or hear any ethereal voices. But then, this isn't exactly heaven. I just remember darkness, endless and close, like a membrane. The next thing I know, I'm stumbling along the shoulder of old San Jose Road, dragging my left foot behind me and wondering what day it is and where I'm coming from and why my left arm doesn't work. Then a pickup truck drives past and a rotten tomato explodes against the side of my face. Two teenagers are riding in the back of the truck. One of them has his pants pulled down and his bare ass pointed my way, while the second one throws another tomato at me and yells, Go back to your grave, you freak! At first I think they're just being kids, throwing rotten tomatoes at people for kicks. Denial is one of the first hurdles zombies have to overcome. Then I stagger up to Bill's groceries and I catch a glimpse of myself in the front window. My left ankle is twisted at an obscene angle. My left arm is useless. The bones pulverized from the shoulder to the elbow, ending in a twisted claw that used to be my left hand, while my left ear is a mangled piece of flesh and my face looks like a jigsaw puzzle. As I stare at my hazy reflection, dressed in a black suit and tie and looking like I just walked off the set of a George Romero film, a six-year-old girl walks out the door, drops her frozen fudge bar when she sees me and runs off screaming. Not exactly one of the top ten moments of my life. Except this isn't life anymore. And it's not death either. It's not even in between. It's more like a bad spin-off from a successful sitcom that the network refuses to cancel. From my injuries, I figure I've been in a horrible accident and lost consciousness and wandered away without any recollection of what happened, which isn't too far from the truth, except I've lost consciousness for three days. And instead of wandering away from the accident, I've wandered away from my coffin less than 24 hours before my funeral. I don't know any of this at the time. I just think I need some help. So I go into Bill's groceries to ask if I can use the phone. Before I can get any words out or more than one foot inside the door, Bill's wife comes at me with a broom and a spray can of Lysol disinfectant and shoes me away. I wander off, confused, with rotten pieces of tomato clinging to my face as I stagger toward town, looking for help. A quarter mile away, I come to a park. There are two payphones over by the restrooms, so I lurch my way up the sidewalk, dragging my left foot behind me, ignoring the screams of children as they scatter in front of me like the Red Sea parting from Moses, though I suppose Lazarus would make a more appropriate biblical reference. Still unaware that my injuries aren't causing me any discomfort, I reach the payphone and remove the receiver. Cradling it between my right ear and shoulders, I dial 911. Seconds later, an operator is on the line asking me what my emergency is. I don't know what I want to say, or how I want to say it, so I just decide to open up my mouth and say the first thing that comes to my mind. Except there's one problem. My mouth is sewn shut. 
Frequently, prior to the embalming process, the mouth is sewn shut to keep it from dropping open. A curved needle enters the nostril, comes out behind the teeth, and goes around and around until the jaws are sutured shut. But since I think I'm still among the living, I don't understand why I can't open my mouth. So I thrash my right arm around, make a lot of grunting noises, and stagger toward an old man and his wife who run away like Olympic sprinters. When I hear the sirens and turn to see the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's car pull into the parking lot, I think I'm finally going to get some help. When I see the white animal control van pull up moments later, it occurs to me I might be in danger. Not from them, but mountain lion sightings are common in Santa Cruz County. <laughs> so I turn around, my eyes wide, wondering when this bizarre nightmare I've awoken into will ever end. Confused, scared, and overloaded, I don't hear the approaching footsteps behind me. The next thing I know, I have one snare around my arms and torso, another around both legs, and a third around my throat. The animal control officers guide me into the back of the van, while the sheriff's deputies assure the growing crowd of onlookers that everything is under control. I spent two days in a cage at the SPCA until my parents finally came to pick me up. The stigma of claiming your undead son and bringing him home to live with you can wreak havoc on your social status, so I can't exactly blame them for not rushing out to claim me. But one more day and I might have been a crash test dummy. The normal holding time for a stray zombie without identification is 72 hours, seven days with ID. For stray cats and dogs, it's the reverse, but without regular formaldehyde fixes, most fresh zombies start to spoil within three days. My stay at the SPCA wasn't as bad as you might think, once I got over the initial shock. They gave me a bowl of fresh water and some kibble, along with my own litter box and a few squeaky toys to chew on. <laughs> they even gave me a pair of dull children's scissors to cut out the mortician stitches so I could open my mouth. When we got home, my parents set me up with a mattress in the wine cellar. They didn't say much. Mom cried a lot and covered her nose and mouth with a towel to keep from gagging on the smell, while my father kept asking me why I couldn't have stayed dead like a normal son. <laughs> my mother spoke to me once, asked me what I wanted. I tried to answer, but the words came out in a croak and a screech. My vocal cords were so badly damaged in the accident that I can't talk, so I have to wear a dry erase board around my neck to communicate. <laughs> while my mother at least makes a pretense of understanding how difficult this has been for me, my father complains about the smell and the stigma and the expense of supporting a zombie. He even asked me once what I intend to do with myself, as if I have some kind of an answer. It's not like I reanimated with a five-year plan, and no one exactly prepped me on how to be a zombie. It's a big adjustment, harder than you might imagine. After all, I still have the same basic hopes and desires I had when I was alive, but now they're unattainable. I may as well wish for wings. On more than one occasion, I've heard my parents discussing me, with my father's suggestion I find my own place to live, some kind of zombie shelter. I've even heard him mention the idea of sending me to a zombie zoo. My mother tries to explain I need support and that I'm just going through a period of adjustment. Like puberty, she says. She assures me my father will come around and that if I believe in myself enough, everything will work itself out. She says this with a straight face. For a moment, I believe her. Then I go to take a pine saw bath and I look in the mirror and I see the jigsaw puzzle that was once my face and I wonder if my mother has lost her mind. Either that or she's on Valium again. Jumping ahead a couple of chapters here and just a little bit of backstory. In addition to living at home with his parents, as any zombies that reanimate, if someone, a family member or a friend comes to claim them, then they can be their guardians, but otherwise they get donated to medical science and used for research. In order to learn to deal with their existence, they, intend, they attend undead anonymous meetings with other zombies in the community, which is moderated by uh, uh, a zombie as well. In this chapter, they're on their way home from one of their undead anonymous meetings and some of the problems that they have to deal with. Rita, Helen, Jerry, and I are on the way home from another meeting with a new group member, a 
45-year-old surfer named Walter who wiped out and hit his head on a surfboard and drowned. They actually never recovered the body until Walter walked out of the surf in his wetsuit at the Santa Cruz Beach and Boardwalk two days later, his lungs filled with salt water and his hair tangled with kelp. Dude, says Jerry, so what was it like being underwater? Don't know, dude, says Walter, his voice a waterlogged gurgle. I just woke up in a kelp forest and couldn't figure out how I'd fallen inside my waterbed. Except I was wearing my wetsuit, and I never wear my wetsuit to bed. If I didn't know any better, I'd swear Walter and Jerry were related. First, I figured I was just dreaming, says Walter, until I felt something sliding down the back of my wetsuit. What was it? asked Jerry. Sea slug, dude, says Walter. It was gnarly. Dude, totally. <laughs> it's not like I can just walk away from them. At least if I keep them on my left, I don't hear them as well through my disfigured clump of an ear. But somehow, one of them always seems to end up on my right-hand side. We cross a parking lot and head down an alley, doing the Robert Frost thing and taking the road less traveled. Not from any desire for adventure, but because we're less likely to, to disturb any breathers this way. It's one of the undead commandments. You will not disturb the living. You will not be out after curfew. You will not commit necrophilia. You will not covet your neighbor's flesh. There are a few more about honoring your host guardians and refraining from acts of civil disobedience, but for the most part, just a bunch of rules we have to follow in order to coexist with the living. Breathers, on the other hand, don't have to follow any rules regarding the undead, except for the necrophilia part, but that's just common sense. <laughs> the alley runs behind several blocks of light industrial complexes, all of which are closed for the night. Helen and Rita walk ahead of us, probably sharing a nice conversation about something meaningful while I'm stuck in purgatory. Dude, you want to touch my scalp? asked Jerry, removing his baseball cap. It's like totally cool. <laughs> Helen suddenly stops and holds her hand up like a crossing guard. Dude, says Walter, running his fingers across Jerry's glistening brain. That's awesome. Shush, whispers Helen. At the end of the alley, in the darkness behind us, car doors open and close. Male voices echo through the alley along with laughter and the sound of a breaking bottle. Then silence. What's going on? asks Rita. Breathers, whispers Helen. By the sound of it, my guess is fraternity boys. Rednecks mostly just scream insults and break bottles over your head and terrorize you until they get bored. Teenagers are more dangerous because of all the raging hormones, though they lack imagination. Bowling leagues are typically single-minded, using the tools of their trade to inflict their damage after a night of drinking. But fraternity boys dismember, beat, mutilate, torture, carve, and flambe, and they never seem to get tired of it. Well, that's what I hear anyway. I've never actually encountered any fraternity members, bowling leagues, or rednecks. And other than the teenagers who hit me with tomatoes to christen my new ex existence, most of the abuse I've encountered has been verbal. After a few minutes, another bottle breaks, more laughter, followed by a single voice. Zombies, come out and play. Uh-oh, says Jerry. Uh-oh is right. At the end of the alley behind us, more than two blocks away, five or six figures materialize out of the darkness carrying various objects of destruction. Run, says Helen. That's easy to say when both of your legs work. But when your left ankle is a surrealistic piece of art, running isn't really an option. I'll help Andy, says Rita, slipping over to my left side. You three go. Walter and Jerry don't have to be told twice and take off. Helen hesitates a moment, then follows, her short legs pumping faster than I would have imagined a 52-year-old zombie could run. Rita puts one arm around my waist, draping my left arm around her neck. Ready? I want to be brave and tell her to leave me here. But I'm glad I can't talk because it's comforting to be touched by Rita, to have her arm around me and her body pressed up against mine. And it's so much better than getting dismembered all alone, so I just nod. It's slow going at first, but by the time Jerry, Walter, and Helen reach the end of the alley, we've got a rhythm going, and it feels like we're making good time. Then I glance back and see the fraternity boys barely a block behind us. 
Hoots and hollers echo along the alley as the steady thread of footsteps running on asphalt grows closer. Rita and I keep stumbling toward the end of the alley like the last contestants in a three-legged race trying to cross the finish line, except we're not laughing, and no one's cheering, cheering us on. And if we fall down, we'll get attacked and mutilated, but otherwise it's the same. We're past the last building, and I'm hoping we can find some place to hide, some way to ditch our pursuers when a figure appears in front of us. Come on, says Jerry, helping to escort me around the side of the building to a dumpster. Let's get them inside. Hurry. Together, Rita and Jerry help me up and over the edge until I'm falling face first into something soft and sticky that seems to split open on impact. Stay there, says Jerry. We'll come back to get you. Like I have a choice. I listen to Jerry and Rita run off and then make myself comfortable in the warm, gooey substance spreading across my face. <coughs> it feels like glue, but smells more like motor oil. Not exactly the way I envisioned spending my Tuesday night. Less than ten seconds later, footsteps come around the corner of the building, approach the dumpster, and continue past. At least most of the footsteps race past. One of the fraternity members stops right outside the dumpster. When your heart's not pounding and adrenaline isn't pumping through your system, you feel oddly at ease during moments of duress. Still, that doesn't mean I'm not afraid of being found. I just don't experience the physiological effects of fear the way I used to. It's more like a memory, and right now, my memory is telling me I'm pretty much screwed. <laughs> Helen suggests each of us find a creative way to deal with our feelings of hopelessness, a sort of artistic therapy to cope with the challenges of being one of the undead, like painting or sculpting or writing poetry. The idea is to create something beautiful that transcends our less than glamorous existence. I used to pen an occasional haiku just to give the right side of my brain some exercise. I don't know if it matters anymore, considering my brain is gradually liquefying, but old habits don't die even when you do. So as I'm lying in the dumpster coated with industrial goo, thinking about immolation and dismemberment and toxic waste, this is the thing of transcendent beauty I come up with. Shattered life dangles. A severed voice screams in grief. I'm rotting inside. <laughs> After several minutes of hearing nothing, I finally roll to one side and wipe some of the goo from my eyes so I can look out the open lid. At first all I see is darkness, then I make out the silhouette of what looks like a face peering down into the dumpster. Randy! I don't know who jumps more, me or Randy but the silhouette disappears beyond the edge of the dumpster. What are you doing? asks the approaching voice. Nothing, says Randy. I was just... He whispers the rest because I can't hear it. Seconds later, two silhouettes are looking down at me. One of them raises a long, thin object and plunges it into the dumpster. Over there, says Randy, pointing. The probe comes down again closer this time, barely missing my arm. I think it's a steel rod or maybe a piece of rebar. Whatever it is, it's going to do some damage if it strikes home. When it comes down again, it plunges into my side, tearing through my clothes and flesh and snapping one of my ribs. Definitely rebar. Three-eighths of an inch, sharpened by the feel of it. It comes down again, catching me in the thigh. The next one misses me, but the one after that pierces my palm, and I wonder if this is how Christ felt on the cross. While there's no pain, the sensation isn't pleasant. It's more invasive than uncomfortable, with a hint of humiliation. If you've never been in a dumpster coated with industrial waste while somebody stabs you with a piece of sharpened rebar, then you probably wouldn't understand. Part of me wants to just let them find me, to let this be done with so this existence can come to an end and I can be free of the memories that still tuck me into bed at night and greet me at dawn, sitting on my chest like a weight that never leaves. Except even in undeath, when faced with your potential demise, there's a self-preservation instinct that kicks in. Besides, if I'm going to be destroyed, it's not going to be at the hands of a bunch of drunk college boys. The next stab lands inches from my head. Just as the rod raises again for another go, a voice in the distance shouts, We got one! The silhouettes turn and vanish, their footsteps racing away. I lay there a moment, oddly thankful to still be undead, then pull myself up to the edge of the dumpster and peer out into the night, hoping whoever they found isn't Rita. 
In the wash of a parking lot more than 100 yards away, several figures are moving in rapid motion, swinging objects, beating on another figure struggling to get away. At first I think it's Jerry, and I'm surprised to discover how much that thought depresses me. Then the figure shouts out with a voice that sounds like a water bong. Help! Somebody help! The fraternity boys pounce on Walter and drive him to the ground and beat on him. Within minutes, he's dismembered and dragged off to the fading hoots and hollers of drunk fraternity boys. No one comes to his aid. Not the police, not the animal control, not any other breather who might happen to be passing by. And certainly not a fellow zombie with one useless arm and one useless leg. I drop back down into the dumpster and listen to the shouts drift away until I'm alone with my silence and my feelings of inadequacy. But when you spend most of your existence in your parents' wine cellar drinking bottle after bottle of wine and watch, watching reruns of Joni Loves Chachi while you gradually decompose, feelings of inadequacy are part of the room and board. Problem is, even if I would have tried to help Walter, even if I could have helped, it wouldn't have mattered. Presuming I wouldn't have been dismembered along with him, any form of aggression by zombies against humans is considered grounds for immediate destruction, even if it's in self-defense. And as I've suddenly discovered... I'm more interested in self-preservation than I thought. I wait in the dumpster for the return of Rita, Jerry, and Helen, wondering how long it will be before they come back for me, hoping they show up before the waste management truck, thinking about Walter. You hear about things like this happening all the time to other zombies who live in another town or another state or another country, but when it happens to you, to someone you know, it becomes something personal, something that affects you, something that inspires you, something that makes you want to take some action. Have time for one more chapter? So this is moving forward to Thanksgiving, which I think is appropriate since Thanksgiving is coming right up around the corner. Andy has now gone out, and he's protesting for zombie rights. He's getting sent back to the SPCA. He's costing his parents a lot of money, and so he's generally become a little bit of a pain in the ass to mm -hmm. his parents, at least to his father, who uh, obviously has problems with him there. So we move forward to Thanksgiving where they're trying to sort of make things a little bit more normal. In light of my recent displays of spirited rebellion, as she put it, and my father's exponentially increasing resentment toward me, my mother thought we might patch, the, patch up our problems and differences if we all sat down and shared a nice family Thanksgiving dinner together. Just like old times, she says. The three of us are sitting around the dining room table in a stifling, uncomfortable silence. My father shovels cranberry sauce and turkey into his mouth, refusing to speak or to make eye contact with me or my mother, while Mom abandoned her attempts at making conversation after my father told her to shut it. Now she just sits in her chair, holding back tears and biting her lower lip as she picks at the stuffing and green beans on her plate. My parents don't appear to be in the holiday spirit. Meanwhile, I'm thankful just to be eating at the table. It's the first time my parents have invited me to join them for a meal since my third day back, when one of the stitches on my face popped and a piece of rotting tissue fell into my mother's homemade gazpacho. <laughs> Needless to say, she hasn't made it since. Fortunately, my stitches seem to be holding fast these days, better than I would have thought after four months, so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for a lot of things, more than I would have imagined barely more than a month ago. I'm thankful for my support group. I'm thankful for Rita. I'm thankful for meeting Ray. And I'm thankful my speech is returning. It's still rudimentary, but when your vocabulary has consisted of grunts and screeches that make Leatherface sound like a Rhodes Scholar, anything is an improvement. In addition to, I Ida, hi Rita, I've managed to vocalize a few other expressions. Ooh, look eight, you look great. S-E's, yes please. Anku, thank you, and Auil, how do I smell? <laughs> Coming from a nine-month-old in a high chair with creamed corn dripping down his chin, the brief explosions of half-English would probably sound adorable. 
But coming from a 34-year-old decomposing half-corpse with mashed potatoes and gravy gripping down his chin, well, let's just say it's probably not going to make anyone reach for the video camera. So I keep quiet and I eat my dinner and I look around the table at my disappointed mother and my brooding father at all of the food and splendor of this silent, oppressive Thanksgiving feast until my gaze falls on the turkey with its blistered skin and its vanishing flesh. The more I stare at it, the more I realize I can relate to it, empathize with it, and it strikes me how much we have in common. True, it's dead and cooked and partially devoured, but is that so different from me? <laughs> as it slowly consumed, the bones appear bit by bit, the cartilage and ribs revealing themselves as meat is stripped from the skeleton. Eventually, it would be nothing but a carcass, and I wonder, am I being destroyed by breathers? Is the process of decomposition gradually consuming me? Or am I being consumed by the degradation of having to exist in a world ruled by the living? The longer I stare at the turkey, the more I begin to feel sort of kinship with it. The more I see it as a metaphor of my current existence, the more I begin to understand why Tom would want to become a vegetarian. Before my father can cut off another slice of breast or tear off a wing, I reach over and grab the turkey by its leg and drag it off the serving platter across the table toward me. Hey, says my father, his mouth filled with stuffing, pieces of it spraying across the table. What the hell do you think you're doing? Intervention, deliverance, redemption, take your pick. All he knows it feels right. The turkey overturns the gravy boat on its way toward me, dumping its contents onto the tablecloth and into the cranberry sauce. God damn it! yells my father, dropping his knife and fork and reaching for the turkey. Honestly, honey, says my mother, happy just to have some sort of interaction taking place. If you wanted some more, all you had to do was ask. Before my father can grab the other leg, I pull the 16-pound butterball into my lap, knocking my plate aside and off the edge of the table where it lands on the hardwood and cracks in two, spilling my dinner across the floor. Andy, says my mother, those are my best dinner plates. Give me that turkey, says my father, who gets to his feet and comes around the table with his head thrust out in front of him the way he does whenever he means business. It used to scare the crap out of me when I was a kid, but I'm not a kid anymore, and I'm not giving up my turkey. I push back in the chair and stand up, more sure of myself than I've been in months, and cradle the holiday personification of my essence against my stomach with my right arm as I back away toward the cellar door. Just before my father reaches me, he steps in my spilled mashed potatoes and goes down hard, smacking his elbow on the table. Are you all right, dear? asks Mom, who is still sitting in her chair as if this is all completely normal. My father doesn't answer, just gets to his feet and comes after me. I've almost reached the wine cellar door when he catches up and grabs hold of an exposed leg. I don't think he even cares about eating the turkey anymore. He just doesn't want me to have it. Part of me wonders what the hell I expected to accomplish, how I thought this would improve my situation. Another part of me finds this more fun than any recent Thanksgiving I can remember, so I start to laugh. This isn't funny, says my father, trying to pull the turkey away from me. But I've got a firm grip on the other leg with my right hand, and I'm not letting go. Over my father's shoulder, I see my mother cleaning up my broken plate as she complains how we both ruined a perfectly lovely meal. My father and I continue to fight over the turkey, each of us pulling on a leg, skin and meat sliding off in our hands. And I'm reminded of sluffage. During the initial stages of human decay, liquid leaking from enzyme-ravaged cells gets between the layers of skin and loosens them. Sometimes the skin of an entire hand or foot will come off. As the process continues, giant sheets of skin peel away from the body, like the piece of skin that just slipped off the leg my father is holding. Yeah. If I hadn't already ruined my appetite for turkey, that definitely did it. An instant later, the leg in my father's hand rips away and he stumbles back and falls into the antique black buffet hutch containing my mother's teacup collection. The hutch topples over and lands with a thunderous crash of wood and broken china cups as I fall to the floor laughing with the turkey in my lap and my mother starts to cry, just like old times. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.